0: Thank you
1: Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Yuli, your sometimes host, and today's show was pre-recorded live on stage April 4th, 2019 at Ann Arbor's Historic Michigan Theater. It's a conversation I did with author, humorist, and historian Sarah Val. This is the Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Yuli, your sometimes host, and today's show was pre-recorded live on stage April 4th, 2019 at Ann Arbor's Historic Michigan Theater. It's a conversation I did with author, humorist, and historian Sarah Vowell. The event, sponsored by PBS Books, was part of the Penny Stamps Distinguished Public Speaker Series, a public program of the University of Michigan. They present creators and innovators as a way for the community to connect with creative leaders. This series takes place at the Michigan Theater weekly on Thursdays and is offered to the public free of charge. The fall series opens September 12th. More info at pennystampsevents.org.
0: Hi, Sarah. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to Michigan. Thank you. I'm keeping my jacket on because it's very damp here. (laughs) Just to paint a picture for the
1: thank you the
0: uh, PBS people.
1: That's a good. That's a good start. Yeah, um, and you're in a college town,
0: right? Which you're familiar with? Yes. Tell us about your college town. My college town is called Bozeman, Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the home of Montana State University. Not to brag, um, <laughs> that's where I went to school. Um, it's less damp than Ann Arbor. Oh, it's very dry. Okay, yeah, good. good. We do have cold though. Yes, yes. Uh, well, I keep would... your
1: jacket on. Okay, be comfortable.
0: It's a dry um. cold. It's a dry. <laughs> it's a dry cold. Good. <clears throat> I assume you're familiar with snow here.
1: I've seen it. Yes. Yeah, we've seen it. Yeah.
0: Has anyone started reading Mayor Pete Buttigieg? Judge's book yet, because oh. it starts out It starts out talking about this, I've, I've been reading that, and it starts out talking about this historical snowstorm in South Bend, Indiana before he was born that people still talk about. And um, we just had a lot of snow in Montana, and there, there comes a time, you know, when the snow ends, and you're like, where do we put it? Yeah. <laughs> and apparently they had this big construction site in South Bend that wasn't really going anywhere that people called the hole and they just (laughs) shoveled all the snow into the hole. And I was like, God, I wish my town had a hole.
1: (laughs) I hope it's melted by now. That was before he was born?
0: Yeah, Yeah. it's melted. It's melted. I hope so. so. But my town really needs a hole. (laughs) And Ann Arbor doesn't have one. We might
1: get less snow than Bozeman. Oh, that's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Um, well, Christina gave such a beautiful introduction of all of your work and all oh, that you've done. That's nice. You're the author of seven. We
0: were nine- just backstage, and I asked you if you had ever seen that <laughs> documentary about Yo Yo Ma and the Silk Road, and it starts out where he's someone's introducing him, and he's backstage, just like Ugh, being completely embarrassed by every nice thing that's being said about him. But you weren't doing that. No, but I can relate. Like, no one needs to hear that. (laughs) Yeah. Until they're dead, you know. (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, so I'm not going to repeat those things. About your career. No, the eulogy. Okay. But I think a primary thing that I want to know about you, and that all of us want to know about you, is how you get to be all the things you are, but the combination of American historian and voice actor... In an animated movie or two, that's you're the only one I know that that does both of those
0: things. Hmm. Um, are there more? No, I don't. That's, I don't. It's no. True. One time, David McCullough narrated that Ken Burns documentary. Hmm. So
1: yes, my he sold out that. first.
0: Um. <laughs> I mean, it all actually came from uh, public radio, really, you know. I was, I was working on This American Life in the 90s and made a documentary about American history for that show, and then I just kind of fell in love with that and then just went sort of off the deep end. And um, Brad Bird, who directed The Incredibles, heard one of my documentaries so when I get these letters or questions about how do I get into voice acting? Like first become a historian? Yeah. And then
1: work for public, public radio. Radio. Yeah. Yeah. I right, guess. seven books. Interview, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good way. Well, um, yeah, I wanted to ask you more just about your path. I know we have some students from the Penny Stamps School here today. Where are the Penny Stamps students? Make yourselves known. Yeah. Um, so we have young artists in the room, and I just wanted to ask you about advice for your path. Not everyone aspires to be a, an American historian and
0: Voice actor at the same time. I mean, there wasn't really a plan. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, unfortunately, I guess I would say, all even though I never really had a plan, all along the way I worked really hard. (laughs) You know, Um, I mean, I started out writing for my school newspaper, my college newspaper, the Montana State University Exponent, and I was a a newscaster on the Montana State University public uh, college radio station, and then... Then I decided I should be an art historian and went to school for that. And while I was in school, was sort of moonlighting for newspapers and writing my first book. Um, a journalist uh, just last night actually was working on a, a piece about Generation X, and, which I guess I'm a part of, and its myths. And one of them is the myth of the slacker. And I was just like, oh, no, I mean, my I just worked so hard in my 20s. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this will make it in the piece, but, I, you know, I had, and I, I made so little money, and uh, so I had to work harder, you know, to make more, and um, being a freelance writer, and sometimes I would have... At least, I mean, I would have at least one deadline every day for a newspaper or a magazine or for the radio show. And sometimes I would have three deadlines. I had a column, and and I was just so overworked for so many years. And I remember the one time I, I flaked out on a deadline. It was for the Baltimore Sun, and it was a book review. And I just had to just bail. And the editor called to excoriate me And, um, because I let him down, which I did, I hung up the phone, I let myself cry for five minutes, and then I had to get back to work, you know? (laughs) So it's like, slackers, no. It was just a lot of, yeah, it was a lot of one job led to another, but it was all, it was all hard, kids. It was
1: It was just without the internet. It was you know, like work. the
0: adults will tell you, you know, if you find what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. I cannot underscore enough how untrue that is. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was... A, one time when I was working on a book about presidential assassinations, and I was going... Thank you. And I was going to this prison island off the coast of Key West. I have a lot of um, problems, like I experience motion sickness, I have a lot of allergies, so I'm not exactly Hemingway. In fact, on that trip, I went to Hemingway's house in, in Key West, and I had to leave after about a minute because one of my most dire allergies is to cats and he has all those cats (laughs) so I go to Hemingway's house and I have to like run back to my hotel to take a Benadryl, you know, (laughs) and I thought, okay, so I needed to go to this prison island where some of the Lincoln assassination conspirators were, were held prisoner and uh I was gonna take a seaplane, which sounded terrible, but it was shorter than the boat. But it was hurricane season, and that, they said, no, you can't take the seaplane. You can take this boat if you sign a waiver. <laughs> and I had to, like, I was on this boat for three hours, I think, and I vomited the entire time. And then I get to this prison island, and I interview the park ranger. Everyone else is there to snorkel. And I'm there to, like, learn about these prisoners. And then I realize, oh, my God, I have to get back on that boat. And then I, you know, vomited for three more hours getting back to (laughs) Key West. And I love my job. (laughs) So just buck up.
1: (laughs) It's just what I was looking
0: for. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. I like to inspire young minds.
1: So, I mean, again, as Christina mentioned, your work has appeared in so many different media. You know, there's films and um, radio. You were in the pioneering days of This American Life. That was, like, before there was a Pioneering. podcast. Uh.
0: <laughs> it was before it, there was a podcast because iPods weren't invented. And sometimes I'll go to speak to, you know, high school journalism students, and they'll have listened to one of my old documentaries from, like, 20-something years ago, and they keep calling it a podcast. And I'm like, that's a radio show. That <laughs> There weren't podcasts. That's not what it was. People... Like something was on and you had to turn on this, you know, gadget and everyone listened to it at the same time and it was this thing that bound the country together. A shared experience.
1: And if you missed it, you had to like Tough luck. Tough luck. Yeah. 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 So you've done radio, you contribute now, you're an opinion writer for the New York Times, you've written books. So I mean I'm of the opinion that every idea sort of has its best form. It's highest and best form. Some things just are novels, and some things ought to be films. So how do you I would love for you to speak to that. How do you know when you think of an idea, like, what is this for? What's it going to be? What should it be?
0: Um, Hmm. I mean, generally, I'm thinking of an idea for the form, you know? Mm -hmm. So, like, especially with the opinion column, uh, It'll, like, uh, last year, my senator, John Tester, whom I like, uh, he's on the Veterans Affairs Committee. He's a ranking member of the Veterans Affairs Committee, and, you know, that president we have had this, um, his first choice were to lead Veterans Affairs, and he was maybe not the best candidate. And Senator Tester was like, how about someone better (laughs) to run this giant bureaucracy that affects millions of lives? And then the president, um, he didn't like that. And then he started showing up in Montana, you know, to um, campaign for the opponent who was a terrifying candidate. Um, I mean, not, he was called a Republican, but he was one of those... New kind of Republicans you know, so that seemed like a new york times thing i don 't want to write a whole book about you know my farmer senator, but I had some <laughs> things to say about you his, had some things to say. I had some things to say about his Senate career and the opponent who was you know he was saying crazy things like um, the federal government should not be involved in funding the colleges and universities oh. which as a college town you might understand that some of your funding comes from the federal government yeah. um and important funding you know and also the students are able to attend said universities thanks to help from the federal government and it's a whole circle where it's a good thing it's i think a, <laughs> i don't know well so like stuff like that just yeah. seems more uh, you know newspapery
1: yeah
0: and um Then, I mean, some books I have in my mind of something I'd like to write about someday. Like, you know, I always thought I wanted to write about the um, New England Puritans. And because people love them, I discovered. (laughs) And, uh, but I didn't have a reason, really. And, uh, I mean, usually like something ticks me off. And that's more of a book, like long-term sort of thing where, Like, I was watching President Reagan's funeral on TV, and uh, Sandra Day O'Connor... Uh, was reading from John Winthrop's sermon, uh, um, a model of Christian charity, where the image of New England as a city upon a hill came from. That President Reagan um, appropriated, and that was that was like I got to write about these Puritans, you know, because I mean the that sermon, which is my favorite, my favorite Puritan sermon. I know we all have our own <laughs> <laughs> favorites. Um, apparently, Pete Buttigieg's uh, favorite Puritan sermon is by Samuel Danforth. Which, what? Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, this sermon is about is about charity and generosity, and you know the Reagan administration was all about dismantling all the social programs having to do with charity and generosity. So I thought maybe it's time we should revisit these people. And then, I, then that was really hard, you know. To read Puritan sermons for two years. (laughs) Like I would, and they're, they're, I mean, one reason I wanted to write about them was that they were so learned and bookish and wordy, and people think of them as uh, stupid. Not that they, you know, they were people. They were, they were, they lived before the Age of Enlightenment. They were gonna do some unenlightened stuff, but (laughs) they were very literary. And where was I going with that? Oh, yeah, so I would spend sometimes days trying to, and they were Cambridge-trained theologians, and I'm not. And I would spend days figuring out some sermon or other, and then I would realize, oh this is irrelevant. And then I would move on. Like my friend Stu, when he talks about someone going through a hard time, he always says, you know, like when you were writing that Puritan's book.
1: <laughs> that was your hard time. Yeah. Because you read enough sermons to, to develop a favorite. Yeah. Or more than one favorite. But like Sorry.
0: that was more of a book. Me yeah. being still mad at dead President Reagan, you <laughs> yeah. know.
1: Yeah. So in your books, by my read, you have this amazing synthesis of all this stuff going on. You have kind of established facts that you must gather from archives or libraries or other places. Mm -hmm. And then you have these firsthand facts because you often travel, you go places you experience in the moment, you know, what's happening. And then, you know, I I perceive that there's kind of a memoir dimension a little bit where you're talking about, like, how you remember things and how you feel things. And I think that that's that's part of what makes your books powerful for me. So I wonder if you could talk about, like, bringing those things together or if you see it that way.
0: Um, I think it just, it was very intuitive and it started, that first piece that I wrote about American history was about the Trail of Tears. And my sister and I drove The Trail of Tears and made a documentary about it. So it was uh, in our ancestors' had That's how they got to Oklahoma. And um, uh, it was a road trip story. So we would stop at these historic sites where it was pretty grim. And then we would go get barbecue. <laughs> and then we would go farther down the road, and more people died. And we would listen to Chuck Berry. And it, what, it seemed to be a, a very accurate way to talk about this country, which is a little schizophrenic, you know? That mm-hmm. it's fun and not fun, you know, Uh, and so, and then, you know, it was just something about meeting the people along the way, the people at the historic sites, talking to school kids, Um, and there are just certain things you can learn from the locals that aren't necessarily in the books. Um, I mean, like that town pride can be really educational, I think one of One of the things uh, I was writing about the Oneida community, which they 're sort of an eccentric nineteenth century biblical sex cult, and they 're <laughs> easily lampooned but you know, because I had the local docent who was a retired high school history teacher showing me around. And he had really thought about why these people would come to this weird place to lead these weird lives. And and he was reading uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's all about, you know, how we're just like spiders. God is dangling into the fire. And and, and it's not a very... um, It's not a very... Particularly pleasant version of Christianity, you know, and, and especially for the women who came to this place, um, they had these really constrained lives, and they had come to this place to um, for freedom, and, you know, that's something I think we can all identify with, even if not necessarily with these particular people, but that that motive of choosing your own life and not being stuck in Uh, you know, the life chosen for you by your parents or the social norms and stuff like that. So there's always something about talking to the people on the ground where you get a vision of a different idea. You know, like in my most recent book about Lafayette, going to the Brandywine Valley uh, just to research the Battle of Brandywine where Lafayette was wounded, I stumbled into this den of Quakers, and um, the, you know, the battle took place partly on their, in, around their meeting house, which is rude, you know. They're anti-war, but, um, yeah, like, talking to these Quakers who, uh, you know, their whole reason for being is to talk about how war is not the answer, and they were just really questioning me and this country and how we see war, we, how we see history as war, and um, I thought they had some good points, so I included them in the book. And probably a, a more traditional historian, you know, might not have. So you
1: combine that kind of it's reporting really on the ground yeah. with people with what kind of research like how do you do that other research is it
0: it kind of depends on the story some like um that one you know just reading a bunch of letters and biographies and he, you know mm, the Books about what was happening in the French court. A lot of the book is about the alliance with France. Mm-hmm. Um, just every step in the story, you know, I read like biography upon biography of all the characters. Then I read all of their like letters and primary documents and stuff. Some things are more archival, like um, the book I did about the history of Hawaii. That was a lot of reading, sitting in the Archives, the missionary archives in uh, Honolulu reading missionary letters. Like, I would go to Hawaii and I would come back less tan. <laughs> like, because I would just be sitting in this room reading these missionary letters and someone would write to, you know, someone on... Oh, oh! You're going to Honolulu. Can you get me some gloves? And a lot of that, you know, that was a lot of. Um, for some reason, those letters haven't been entirely reprinted. Um, <laughs> so it kind of depends on this on the yeah. story.
1: It's not why most people go to Hawaii. Like by the that
0: way. book about the Puritans was a lot of sermons, you know. Yeah.
1: And so, in a process, um, when you're writing a book, it sounds like you you just referenced. Sometimes it's unpleasant yes but but sometimes it must be enjoyable right i
0: mean i like I love editing writing is, can be hard, but once the first draft is 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 done uh, um, then that's that 's where I, I I have the most fun like I like polishing things and editing things out and cutting things down. i love to I love my delete key mm-hmm. kind of to a fault <laughs> like. Sometimes I'll write something and then I'll just like hold that key down, and there will be a blank screen. And you know, sometimes that's a good day of work. Like,
1: get rid of what you don't.
0: I think eat. we've all read writers who were not in love with their delete keys, and uh, I find it a very honorable, useful tool. Yeah, I mean, I, I was talking to a, another writer friend, and I, I, I. I was about to go out on book tour, and I said, and you know, the last five or six months before a deadline um, are pretty intense, and I worked very long hours, And and i was talking to him and it was like how i got to i got to refrain from talking about this because people don't like hearing about it and he said yeah you know what they like hearing about is that like jack kerouac with that typewriter and the just the roll of paper and it's just all coming out they like stories like that they don't they don't like yeah. you know this weird loner sitting in a room <laughs> at 2am Pulling your hair out, but um, sermons. Yes. yeah, I mean, I think for some other writers, it's probably a peppier, you know, <laughs> process. Peppier, yeah, yeah, maybe. maybe, yeah.
1: Well, one thing about your books that um, that fascinates me is that they're so kind of warm and funny and personal, and they're also history books. And so mm-hmm. I feel like you're able to reach readers who don't don't usually pick up a history book that's true and i want to know about your readers i mean we're, we're talking tonight about libraries and yeah what a bunch of
0: lightweights um, <laughs> no
1: that's what i was getting at
0: yeah. i mean i do get a lot of readers who say they don't read other history books you know which i don't know how i feel about that i mean it's good to bring them in i i um i don't i don't know why you wouldn't I know why you would read some history books, but that's where most of the people who've ever lived are, you know. <laughs> so there are some good stories there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know why people aren't interested in it more. What's what is that? What do you people yeah. care about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Vikings? No, that's historical. No, that's historical, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're so boring. Vikings. Um, I don't know.
1: But I I think it's a path. I mean, for me, I I see it as a way to have someone become
0: I mean my good. sister is like that she she's not a history book reader and a lot of times I'll use her I'll call her up if I'm you know some I do really my main goal is I really try for clarity and I do try to find what's essential and boil it down to that you know like some of these battles I learn a lot about them and not, and I'll call my sister, and I'll, and I'll tell her everything I know, and you know, I'll say like, are you interested in whether the, this particular make of cannon is being used? And she, <laughs> whatever I say, are you interested in this? She invariably says no, <laughs> and um, and so uh, I do try to like get to the point and keep things moving. And I think some of that comes from working in broadcasting because you're just so, you're terrified by dead air and, you know, um, listeners have a lot of distractions uh, that readers, even if they're distracted, they can come back to something. So you're always like trying to trying to keep things moving. And sometimes I'll encounter, like I, a few years ago, I got really into Japanese gardens. Huh. So that also changed change the way I edit things a little bit, because so much of the Japanese gardens are about emptiness and negative space. And um, I basically, uh, I just want to keep editing, editing, editing things down to nothing, you know? <laughs> but, or just to, um, to be more concise, I guess. And your books?
1: don't have chapters. So that right. sort of flow. Yes. is, is that, That's on purpose,
0: right? Yeah, that seems to bother some people a lot, <laughs> the no chapters. But I don't, I mean, sometimes that seems so arbitrary because, you know, one thing is a paragraph and another thing is 40 pages. And why not just keep things going? Keep it going. Keep it going. I mean, I do have little, um, some little, uh, like sometimes I'll use the pound sign and then they'll be, to just move on to a new section. I think that might come from radio, too, where if you're done talking about something, you just play a little music, and then it's time for the next thing, you know? Yeah, but, so you have some music breaks. But, but I books, sometimes sorry. think chapters I- enforce this sort of, um, I don't know, equanimity that it it is just meaningless to me. Like some things are, you know, worth dwelling on and some things aren't and I just don't like to chop it up that much Uh
1: we were talking a minute ago about this idea of like access to information and sort of what libraries do and how important that is Um, and you we referenced before, also live in the middle of the country. We are mm-hmm. in the middle of the country right now.
0: Yeah, what a bunch of rubes we all are. <laughs> well, I wonder if you could speak to
1: that role of that um, of access to information for everyone and that, that equal access that's so important and how it may look different around the country, different maybe in Michigan and Montana, but also in... Other areas. Do you have a
0: perspective? Well, on I, mean, that? The, I mean, I mean, I'm sure, like this place uh, and where I come from, they are college towns, which is its own little ecosystem, I think. Mm. And um, yeah, like I mean, the thing about I love about books and um, films, and you know, it, they're all we're all equal, we can, you know, I can read the same book as um, the Queen. I remember Nick Hornby when he first started selling a lot of books and he he um, he met some actress who had read one of his books and he said he thought, oh, I just thought they would read the famous people books but they just read the same books as everybody else, you know. <laughs> so there was that equal access to education and I think, um, I mean, Ours was a college town. It's becoming fancier. It was more of a working class town when I was growing up there, but a lot of the college kind of filtered into the rest of the town. Like um, I remember in high school, we were reading Madame Bovary. And this one kid, he raised his hand and he said, hey, why do I have to read this? I'm going to be a plumber. <laughs> and uh, the English teacher, Joanne Troxel she said, I don't care what you do. I mean be a plumber the world needs plumbers my job is to make sure you're a plumber who's read Flaubert. <laughs> and that shut him up and he read the book you know cuz I guess he thought about it and he wanted to be a plumber who had read Flaubert and you know there was uh, there was so much interaction between the school and, and the town and when I was growing up there you know the the I, I Sort of feel like the college kind of raised me in a way, and you know that 's where a lot of the happenings in town were taking place and and a lot of the community was centered around things at the school or people from the school come you know like um, i was I was remembering today thinking about um, Mayor Pete and his big snowstorm, and there was this one winter the winter of eighty nine When it was just so cold for so long, you know, just days and days, it was maybe 30, 40 below. And um, the town was very um, focused on foreign films. And I remember the film that was being shown uh, shown downtown that week uh, was Babette's Feast. And everyone who came to the theater, because cars really can't be relied on, or they couldn't at the time be relied on to start, you know, when it's 40 below, everyone in the theater ran there, like literally (laughs) ran. And every time a new person would come into the theater, everyone would clap. (laughs) And it was just this real community. And it was... Fairly snooty, looking back on it, like i mean i don 't have any of these great Montana stories the way people want a Montana story, you know, because I was in this town watching Werner Herzog movies, <laughs> like it was its own it was its own weird little place, and um, yeah, like the the film society was part of that, and the library i mean i is there still interlibrary loan? Oh, yeah. So, oh, man, I was at that desk every single day, you know. <laughs> I was probably getting, like, your books from here sent there. To Bozeman. Yeah, yeah. to Bozeman. But, like, um, yeah. It, like, there were a lot of snobs in my town, and maybe I was one of them, but it, 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 it we were the kind of snobs that can happen anywhere where you have a public library and you have, you know, access to, you know... A film theater. A film theater, yeah, Yeah. and stuff like that. It was just all available to us. And none of it... And it was, you know, it was just what you did. Like, the summer when I was 18, like, all the weirdest movies were shown in the auditorium of the... uh, agriculture department, which (laughs) it was called Linfield Hall and I later found out its original name was Morrill Hall and it was named after Justin Morrill who um, you know, the sponsor of the Land Grant Colleges Act and but it was where, yeah, it was the agriculture department because they, you know, that was an important department, and so they had a good auditorium. And um, the summer I was 18, every week, it was a different Werner Herzog film was shown, and then we would, we would go there, watch that film, and then bike to Dairy Queen. <laughs> so it was this kind of great, you know, combination of, of um, the cerebral and the wholesome, I <laughs> yes. think.
1: And, um, you know, one of the things that, that made me think about this uh, this access to information is what you wrote about recently in the New York Times with the the TV program in your town.
0: Oh, yes. Can you talk um, about that a little bit? Yeah. That? So um, the college, our college, and then the one in Missoula combined for Montana PBS and... Um, Every every week um, during the school year, there's this show that I love, a call-in show that's on uh, Montana PBS, so that's filmed in my town, and it's called Montana Ag Live. <laughs> what does you no ag stand no one for? Does, <laughs> you know, it, it's a call-in show about agriculture and gardening, and... Um, which normally maybe isn't like my thing, but uh it's just this great show where it it's kind of like Heehaw, if everyone on Heehaw had a PhD, you know. <laughs> and um and and people like extension agents, uh researchers in the agriculture department or various science departments at the university come on, they explain their research or you know, uh government officials, people from like fish, wildlife, and parks, uh, ranchers, environmentalists, all these different people come on every week. And But then there's a section where viewers call in and they talk about their problems with bugs or... Um, Like, why isn't this such-and-such growing, and, um, uh, you know, or one of the researchers will come on and talk about some noxious weed we all need to be vigilant about, and it's just so, like, these people are just so brilliant, and they're, like, at the top of their field, and they, they have all these answers. It's just so beautiful, you know, someone has a problem and they solve it for them. That's satisfying. And it's yeah. just so congenial and it's a little bit folksy, but you know, then someone will be doing some cutting-edge biology research that's going to change all our lives. So it 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 has that that, you know, public university town feel of just being super neighborly cutting-edge science. <laughs> and
1: connecting people.
0: In oh, kind of yeah, connecting meaningful. people from the whole state. And um, I remember this one woman, sh- I can't remember what bug had invest- infested her house, and, and um, you know, the. I think she was an entomologist who was taking the call. She just told the woman, you are not alone. <laughs> right? And that's, like, this is a government employee, like, these are state county employees, and that's, you know, what we want from our government. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it really, I mean, it really cheers me up, and I started writing about it because I I wrote about it. It was uh, the Sunday after John McCain had died, and I was watching Meet the Press, and yeah you know um it was kind of like the end of an era sort of coverage and 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 one of the you know the thoughts being expressed was you know here was a guy who could reach across the aisle and they played that clip of him at the National Constitution Center, bemoaning people who I don't remember how he put it something about they, they want to have scapegoats instead of solving problems. Um, I don't know who he was talking about. And, um, like, here these, here's a show every week where all they do is, like, they solve problems. They talk about problems that have been solved. They are seeking public help to solve other problems. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's just really useful and, um, you know, chatty
1: and it, yeah it connects people
0: i think yeah, that's important it really, i think we have
1: to think differently about connecting these mm-hmm. days
0: is how i see yeah it. and also i yeah. mean i'm sure it's uh, you know out here out here in the middle bits um, people have to live together and do and you know like people like on that show there was one i wrote about where um it was about ranchers and their partnerships with conservation groups, and normally those those two entities are, you know, pictured as as in opposition. But you know, in a lot of Montana, they're just working together because they all, you know, they all want um, to save the land, and um, not everything is a big fist fight. Not every issue, you yeah. know. And
1: those connecting places, are- or
0: even things that are hot but hot button issues, like there's one hot button issue in montana where there's um, this prairie reserve, which sounds you know nice, but a lot of ranchers really don 't like it because actually about a third of our state is public land, and you know they just want um, they don't like they don 't necessarily want more rules or more areas where cultivation is barred and um, this rancher was on and someone called and asked him what he thought of this prairie reserve and he was like well i i just prefer a couple of kids go out there and make a go of it <laughs> like you know that was his version of saying god i hate that prairie reserve like <laughs> he just wants a couple of kids to yeah. you know raise some cows you gotta tolerate those yeah other opinions. right yeah yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so speaking of uniting people, I want to take a slight detour and talk about some of the work that you've done um, and that I'm very familiar with in the 826 network, mm-hmm. which is um, 826 Valencia, was a, is a youth writing and tutoring center in San Francisco that started. And you were the board president and a very involved person doing many things at 826 NYC. Yeah, in Brooklyn. Okay, in Brooklyn. Can you tell us about that? And I just want to talk about the importance of that kind of work
0: I mean, one of the things we were talking about uh, this backstage where it, I mean, the main uh, mission is homework help, free homework help. And, um, but we also do writing workshops and it's all for, you know, kids between the ages of six and 18. And, um, you know, they'll do, I remember one really popular work, workshop we did for kids was candy criticism there's always like a writing component or there was one summer that um they wrote novels and we published their novels man that was a real bear to raise money to publish those that but, was
1: a thick book yeah I, as it a was
0: publishing person I yeah remember um, that yeah so um six novels
1: by younger americans was yeah that,
0: yeah so um yeah, it was. It was all about you know providing access. Everything was free. We also did filmmaking in the summers. Um, one of our students, I've been thinking about him during this whole college cheating scandal because our first, the first kid who ever came in right when we opened, um, he was five, and he came in because his mom owned the shop next door. His name was Alex. And he started making these collages that were hilarious. And we didn't really understand what he was doing. And it turned out he was just trying to make the onion. But he was making like a five-year-old's version of the (laughs) onion where he would make these collages. And like his idea of, I don't know, like hell or some kind of, you know, punishment was there was this place called the Jeeks where people had to eat chocolate cake just with their hands. (laughs) <laughs> and um and then he would do all our filmmaking workshops as we started those and um you know he eventually got into the film program at USC and I mean he was he was there like the whole time and did all our, made all of his films with our film program and you know eventually was a volunteer helping other kids make films and then he got into that film program and i remember talking to his mom on the phone and we were just basically just crying for half an hour you know like we knew how hard this kid had worked to get into that school and um yeah that always made it feel you know it was actually hard to keep that place running sometimes uh just keeping the lights on.
1: Those organizations are hard to, I mean, they take everyone. They take a community oh, yeah. of engaged people. Yeah.
0: I mean, you know what's the worst is when, like, a really dedicated volunteer gets pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> like, the worst It'll thing work. for a children's charity is when people have children for some reason. <laughs> I don't know what that's it's a about. Drag, yeah. But I mean, you know it was all about, like, when I was growing up, you know, writers were just people who lived somewhere else. And you know, I never knew writers, or you know, these and these kids they really revere the printed word and they revere books. Like, I remember working on this one publishing project in one of the New York City public high schools, and um we edited the students' essays and we published, we, we always published them in very nice-looking, mcsweeneys um kind of editions. And the day we showed up to give the students um, their copies of the books, this girl took me aside and she was just weeping and she just said, I'm in a book, you know? There's a sense of disbelief in yeah. my
1: experience from students, even sometimes when we tell the students, right. You're, we're going to publish your work, we start in October, we work on it, we work on it, it comes out in the yeah. spring. And um, sometimes students can't even believe that because you're right, they revere. Yeah, I was like, I was 27 when that yeah. happened for me, you know. Yeah, but, um, and a lot of kids at 826 centers, they get to meet writers like you working side yeah, by side. Yeah, I mean,
0: them. they're almost blasé about it, which is the what you want. You want them yeah. to just think of, you know, the local writer as just like... Sitting sit, down with them, or working on it You essay. know, it's just a job, like firefighter. Yeah. Or... <laughs> Hot dog maker, you know, (laughs) it's completely demystified. It is, it is.
1: Can we talk a little bit more? You referenced the college access uh, kind of scandal that we've been reading about, Mm -hmm. Um, but I also want to talk about your alma mater, MSU, Mm -hmm. the MSU in Montana, not the MSU here, and um, and land grant universities. And sort of like the,
0: can you speak to that? Well, your land grant here in Michigan, that's Michigan State, Um, yeah. It's okay. it, it was clap one of the State. it was one of the models for the other land grant colleges, including mine. So yay, Michigan State. Um but these schools I mean I have a kind of um humble background, you know. Um my family is uh all from Oklahoma. They're basically it was all just one big Dorothea Lange photo, you know. <laughs> and um I mean I'm kidding around, but my mother's older brothers had to quit school in third grade to pick cotton. And um, so we really don't take education lightly. And um, having that college, I mean, there's the story I love to tell, especially about my college, which is um, in during the Depression, there was this kid named Maurice. And he lived in Miles City, Montana, and he lived on a chicken farm outside of town and He was graduating and he had this job lined up at the local j c Penneys as a salesman and It was a depression, and that was a pretty good job and but maurice 's older brother said you know hey there 's that college in Bozeman uh, they were very poor why don 't you try and get a scholarship and he did, and he went to Bozeman he went. To MSU. He graduated first in his class. He got into the University of Chicago. He became a microbiologist. And I think of the 14 um, common uh, immunizations, including the one for measles, uh, he developed eight of the 14. Um, and, you know, without this college, he wouldn't have done any of that. I mean, he saved more people's lives in the 20th century than. Hitler and Stalin killed probably, and it was because there was that school existed. And you know, when President Lincoln signed the Land Grant Colleges Act, um, it was the first time in the history of the world that a country decided to educate its working class um, kids, and it was it revolutionized you know the country, and it was you know it was meant to um, mostly educate. They were called the Sons of Toil um, the, to um, learn about agriculture and you know things like engineering and stuff. And um, I mean, I probably wouldn't have gone to college without MSU, um, just like just like Maurice Maurice Hillman, and having access to that um, obviously completely changed my life. And then growing up in the shadow of it too. Um, you know, I took music lessons from the music professors. And um, it was, it, um, yeah, it really, it just changed so many lives uh, and has for, you know, you know, since the 1860s. So you're saying federal funding of education is...
1: I'm for it. You're for it, generally. i for it.
0: <laughs> Good. And I, I mean, these... These universities, these public universities, not not just the land grants, but all of the public universities, they are the jewels of this country. And one of the, to me, the saddest things about that cheating scandal, other than, you know... Every single detail uh, <laughs> is that the, there's this idea like you have to go to a certain school, and these parents want to be able to say their kids are going to those schools, and they're generally private schools, and that's fine. I don't begrudge those you know students of that education, but I think those of us who attended these public universities and they made us the people who we are and have you know had so much impact on the trajectory of, you know, millions of families, and um, I think we need to start speaking up more about how lucky we are. Agree. Mm. So, um, even though my, I just went to a tiny little, I mean, now it has 15,000 students. mm -hmm. This there are more students at University of Michigan than live in my town. I think that's true. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's true. I don't even know what that would be like.
1: Yeah, it's a big university. Yeah. Um, so some years ago, you referred to George W. I bet
0: you have like every martial art. I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> competitively,
1: you mean? Yeah, yeah. just
0: yeah. yeah. Every every I think so. super specific. That's what I'm imagining. <laughs> In uh,
1: well, several years ago now. Not like, just a ceramics class, just raku. <laughs> I don't know. Raku. <laughs> the art students can speak to that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they do. Yeah. In your books, I've noticed so many amazing, fascinating details about the personal lives of people for whom we just usually have, we just usually know the basics, the history making stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I love is that you've taught me about John Wilkes Booth's girlfriend and you've taught me about like these things about their personal lives. So I guess I, wa- I would love for you to speak to why-, why do you put those things in your books and, wh- and why do we love to read about them? And then how do you find them?
0: i mean I, I'm always just um, looking for ways to bring the dead back to life, I guess, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's the smallest details that can make someone come alive uh, you know um, like i mean when i a lot of that when I was working on that assassination book it was everything was really personal I mean these were murders, and I was dealing with widows and you know in some ways the the Just melancholy of those stories, Um, like Mrs. McKinley, um, you know, she. She basically just knitted bedroom slippers after her husband was murdered. She just knitted bedroom slippers over and over. And um, I think in in, um, the McKinley Memorial, they have her sewing bag, and she had sewn a photo of her husband in the back. So every time she reaches for more yarn, she sees his face. And it's just this kind of tragic um, artifact that just, you know... Symbolizes how how her life kind of ended when his did, um, and there are I mean I can joke around and stuff when something strikes me as funny, but a lot of a lot of American history is really um, pretty grim, and I if there's some kind of emotional connection to be made, I don't run away from that, and um, I don't know I just want i just i just I just think of them I mean sometimes I can almost feel these people sitting in the room with me, like you can just see George Washington sitting in the corner, and um I don't know, I'm just always trying to find some way to think of them, to identify with them um usually that that's one reason I go to the historic sites'cause especially to see a lot of like artifacts um, it like the things I mean we've all had this with you know our own loved ones that have departed, like my grandfather I have his his pipe, and um it smells like if I miss my grandfather, I can just i like smell the pipe, it smells like Jack Daniels and Prince Albert in a can, <laughs> just like he did, and he's he's just instantly you know you know almost appears or something, and um, I don't know, I just don't, I think of them as, you know, like people I would know, and I think some of that comes from my family and my family history, and, you know, um, like I have, I have confederates in my attic, and um, there's that whole trail of tears thing, or you know, I just never thought of history as something that happens to other people or important people. It's something that happens to people like me and you know, my hick relatives. <laughs> what
1: do you think about? We were talking uh, earlier about recording history. I mean, wait.
0: I have an example of oh. like me being part of history that I didn't. I didn't even know about that. I've been. Um, you know how um, Beto O'Rourke has. Has been very vocal about being a Fugazi fan yeah. and like a fan of this record label called Discord Records that was founded by this guy Ian Mackay who was in a band called Fugazi among other bands and they have this like really they had this really beautiful business model where all their shows were all ages um, they they made sure their shows never cost more than 10 bucks and I was I was thinking about writing about this and I was looking up I went on the Discord Records website and every fugazi show from their first tour uh, from their first tours in in the 80s is cataloged and archived um, and and the one of their and I went to their Bozeman show from May of 1988, and I can and there are tw- apparently 20 people there, and I can see my sister and me in the photo ah. at the Sundance Saloon, and I, and I felt like you know one of those people in an Alexander Gardner photo of like yeah. Lincoln's second inaugural or something like there I am right next to Ian Mackay. At the Fugazi show. Yeah. And then there's my friend Sean. I think that's my friend Sean. I don't... He would would dye his hair different colors. I don't know if that was exactly (laughs) him, but... um, And there's my sister, and, you know, we're just... a time capsule.
1: Yeah. But... Interestingly, you don't like to
0: be photographed now. No. To be part of history. <laughs> the world took this very photographic turn. And um, I don't. Did anyone, did anyone see that um, video that Joe Biden released? I think it was yesterday, where he's talking about how he's not going to be weird anymore. <laughs> and. <laughs> And um he's going to be respectful of people's personal space, but there was this one weird little aside when he was like, "But now we take so many selfies, and you could kind of see the wheels turning like, "How am I supposed to take a selfie with someone without getting in their personal space?" and it's like, "Yes, that's why i don't I don't like having my photos taken and having these." Selfies because it's basically like being Joe Biden all night long, (laughs) and he really like kind of hit on it for me. Like that is, I, I, yeah, I don't like that, you know, invasion of my personal space. I think, and also like my parents did not take photos of us after we stopped being cute, you know? (laughs) Like, I don't think there's a single photo of me from the age of 14 on. (laughs) I'm just not used to it. And then the world just got so trigger happy. With the
1: photos, I think, do you think there's too many photos in the world right now? I find myself thinking that's, yes, yes. (laughs)